1981, the year I was born and the birth of the millennial generation. A podcast for the rising stars and venture capital. This is Fund 81. Hey, all Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Martin Babinek. Martin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great. So Martin founded the HR services company, Trinet, in 1988, serving as the company's CEO for 20 years and as chairman for 10. Since Martin founded the company 32 years ago, Trinet has grown to annual sales of $4 billion and is now listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And Martin has also led several initiatives to improve economic growth in our global startup community. And Martin, since you're involved in so much, I'd, I'd love to actually turn it over to you in hopes that you can give us three minutes or so to tell us about the initiatives in which you are currently most involved and most passionate. Okay. Thanks, Elizabeth. Since I stepped down as Trinet's CEO in 2008, most of my energy has been concentrating on how to change the direction of a regional economy here in my home area of upstate New York. So even though I started Trinet in Silicon Valley and earned my chops as an entrepreneur in what I would call the most entrepreneur-supporting place on the planet, when I was there building Trinet, I didn't fully appreciate how much the value of being in an entrepreneur supporting community meant and what a significant difference it was compared to other parts of the country. So it was only after moving back here in um, 1999, actually, is when I came to my hometown of Little Falls, New York, uh, with my wife, Krista, and our three children. Uh, who were all in elementary school age, and we decided to raise our kids here. For the next 10 years, I actually was commuting between my Mohawk Valley um, home and Silicon Valley. And over the course of those 10 years, spent a lot of time thinking about the difference between those two valleys. And when I did finally step down as the CEO in 2008, that began my looking around for where did I want to leave my mark. I was actually the chairman for just under two years after stepping down as CEO. And starting in 2010, I launched the nonprofit Upstate Venture Connect. And that began this journey on how could I take that which I knew and learned from by being not only a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but in the course of building Trinet and supporting lots of emerging tech companies all over the US, take those lessons learned from other areas and bring some opportunities for change spread, not just in the immediate Mohawk Valley area, but over the entire region of upstate New York. So that's been a 10 year journey and that really was the basis for writing this book, More Good Jobs. Thank you. And there's so many things that you could be spending your time on. So why write a book? Well, the book followed a lot of work, really over a 10-year period. And that was not just building a nonprofit, uh, that had as its focus helping to build startup community across multiple metro areas of a very large statewide region. So in each community, there were different flavors. There were different approaches. There were some amazing people that I've come to meet over the course of that 10-year journey in these different cities. And they had different approaches on... Um, why they joined our tribe and what they did to help both their community and the broader upstate New York region. So as we made more and more progress, uh, there really was a story to tell. And it was the goal in writing the book then to help provide a blueprint 
uh, that could be helpful to others that might have a desire to start and grow companies in their community, not just as entrepreneurs, but how the community can line up and help be a supporter for those that are really taking on this very difficult task of creating something from nothing, especially in what we'll call the innovation economy. And within the world of emerging technology, we often think about these small companies that get started as startups. And those startups have a very different flavor than the traditional small businesses that our government has various programs. And you'll hear the politicians talking all the time about we got to support small business. And yet what those startups need who are creating something that's based on an innovation and is targeted for a national or potentially global market because of the ability to sell through the internet puts them on a very different trajectory with a different set of needs than the traditional small business. So one of the key things that we've done in our trying to build this startup ecosystem over a broad region is to advance the understanding of, well, what is the difference between a small business and a startup? And why should we care more about fostering faster growth in the startup mode, as opposed to the traditional, let's just help small business that we hear most local leaders, not just political, but most local leaders have a tendency to fall back on that with what they are familiar with, understandably. So because I come from a Silicon Valley background with an understanding of what it's like in other areas, not just Silicon Valley, but noting that there's an actual bifurcation going on where the cities who are growing rapidly in their total employment and average wage rates, in the book we call these magnet cities, these cities are growing at the expense of cities who are losing their next generation talent. We call those cities talent exporting communities. And as you graduate talent out of a talent exporting community and watch them relocate to the magnet cities, the magnet cities like a New York City, a Boston, a Silicon Valley, an Austin, Texas, et cetera, as you watch the talent go to these magnet cities, you're also seeing corresponding declines in the talent exporting cities such as we have across upstate New York. So that phenomena of this bifurcation where the bigger getting bigger at the expense of taking away top talent from communities such as we have across my home region is something that really concerned me, not only from an economic standpoint, but I'm a dad with three children. All right. And two of my three kids have already flown in our flown to coop in our uh, in New York City. And our youngest, our son, has uh, decided to remain upstate. And he's landed well. And he actually works in an innovation economy company. Um, but we need more of those and we don't have enough of them. So for me, one of the most compelling reasons to go down this path was that. I'm tired of waving goodbye to our next generation talent and thinking about how much it breaks up families. And when you're a parent in a talent exporting community and you watch your kids go away, you watch your nephews and aunts go away. If you're a grandparent, you're watching your grandchildren go away. These things are really powerful issues emotionally. And too many people, even in my baby boomer generation, think there's nothing we can do about this. It's the government's fault that we're in this situation. And I've chosen not to take that outlook. I'm an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, you know, we do crazy things because entrepreneurs pursue 
opportunities that are gaps in the market that other people will look at and say, you know, you can't do anything about that. <laughs> this is just another example of entrepreneurs do crazy things. And so that's me. That's what put me on this path. And it's been 10 years of running experiments on trying to do something about that problem. And that became the basis for wanting to help share this so that others could benefit, not just from the examples that we've set, but to help provide some options for people to come up with their own ideas and also get connected with others that can help them. And we try to do that not only through the book, but on the moregoodjobs.org website, we also can bring people into a community that we hope to form with people all over the place, the More Good Jobs community, so that people can help each other pursue these same goals. Thank you. Well, Martin, you're hitting something close to home because uh, I grew up in a talent exporting community. My family owns a family business that has been in the family for three generations. And I moved to a magnetic community in Boulder, Colorado, and have been involved in the startup community there and have seen the differences. I've also, you know, seen a lot of the things that you touched on. But from where I sit as a startup investor, I also see something different, which is that you know, five years ago, I would have said that it was challenging for startups to raise capital and to access startup mentors and resources outside of Silicon Valley. But I believe that has changed. And from my experience, top tier funds and programs like Techstars and Y Combinator are actively recruiting companies outside of Silicon Valley. And so part of why I wanted to talk to you today is because I was skeptical of your mission. And I'm skeptical that we need more programs to support entrepreneurs. And I'd love to hear your response to that. Great question. And especially with your experience as an investor, and you're in a place that is really unique. Uh, if I could diverge for just a moment and I'll come back to your question, um, because I understand a lot about Boulder. Uh, you've read the book and you know that I've given a fair amount of visibility in the book to how was it that Boulder, which in the early 90s, a nice college town had a little bit of things going on with regards to technology, but certainly was not a magnet city as Boulder is today. And in that time period in the early 90s, Trinet, our only focus for customers, were companies that were emerging tech, primarily those backed by outside investors, as well as the attendant service providers who were helping those companies. That was the exclusive focus of our target market. So I knew Brad Feld when he was still in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in 1995, Brad moved from Cambridge to Boulder. And Boulder is not a place that VCs were going out of their way for. And I made the decision to open a Trinet office in Boulder just because Brad Feld moved there. And I believed that he was going to be an agent for change and that Boulder was going to transform. You can fast forward and you're the beneficiary with being in that community today, but it was only about 10 years or so for Boulder to start being on the map and recognized not only around the US, but even globally as this place is attracting top talent. And exactly to your point of, hey, companies are moving from talent exporting communities to places like Boulder to jump in and be part of this exciting community. So we go into some depth on that. And I got to give all credit to Brad Feld for not just his vision and how he went about building a tribe. But when it comes to ideas, I'm a believer in the case philosophy, copy and steal everything. All right. So <laughs> Brad, Brad is, you know, he's got 
the right stuff, the right ideas. And we took lots of stuff out of the Startup Communities playbook, even before his book, Startup Communities, was written, all right? Because I had that ringside seat in watching how Boulder unfolded, and I learned a lot. So that was absolutely a key thing in my thought process that led me to go down various paths and addressing that most difficult, difficult challenge of how do you change culture? Because when Bradfeld moved there in 95, the culture of Boulder was very different than the culture that exists in Boulder today in supporting startup entrepreneurs. So that's kind of what we've done. Now, to go to your question of, well, today in 2020, it's a whole different ballgame. Hey, you got Techstars, you got Y Combinator, you got all these other programs that are out there and capital is mobile, all right? So investors are going to find where there's a good company no matter where it is. So let me try to provide another side to that coin, all right? Especially if you're in a talent exporting city. All right. First of all, I'd point out that the accelerator programs you've mentioned, such as Techstars and Y Combinator, Y Combinator, you're probably aware, only does programs in Palo Alto. And Techstars, while they started building community programs, and Techstars, I have nothing but respect for, believe me, they, it is so impressive what they've done. But their growth, when you see where are Techstars accelerator programs opening up now, it really won't be in talent exporting communities. It's not their model. So if a company such as a startup company uh, from a place like upstate New York, and we've actually had some leave upstate New York to go to Boulder or Boston where Techstars runs programs, and we've had both, then it removes the talent from the talent exporting city. They get nested inside places like Boulder or Boston, and they take advantage of that startup community. And that startup company isn't coming back to Buffalo or Syracuse or Utica, New York, because they have found that the connectivity that exists in these magnet cities has a tremendous impact on their ability to not just get into an accelerator program and hang out with like-minded peers over a 90 to 120 day program, but the value of being inside that community is so great, they're gonna start and grow their company in that community. And so an accelerator program is certainly one avenue. And even if we talk about capital, suppose a company gets started in one of these third or fourth tier markets, as I'm describing, the companies that are at the later stages of financing, let's call it series B and above, that capital is very mobile. And if you meet the metrics from a VC's perspective of qualifying for a series B, you pretty much have a pretty good shot, uh, no matter where it is, to get some view um, from the VC's perspective, they'll look at it. The challenge is in earlier stages, especially at seed stage, and oftentimes even at series A. So if you are a garage level startup, in some communities you can find angel level investing, but not enough depth in that to be able to bring a company from a first slug of 50 to 150,000 in capital, let's say, coming from friends, families, and fools, the three Fs we talk about, getting that first round of capital, to then advance up to a larger seed round and prepare a company to qualify for the more competitive Series A round, that's the hardest part of the capital stack for companies that are in talent exporting communities to address. So once they leave this area, uh, it's a reason they leave is to 
find themselves in places where there is more of an abundance of capital at that stage, seed and series A in particular, and to be in a community where the relationships can be developed with a lot less friction. Because when it comes to especially institutional investing, which is really defined as series A and above, when you get to that level, as you know, Elizabeth, even though there's a company in the form of that institution making the investment, ultimately it's people that make investments, not companies. And when you're talking a high level seed or a series A coming from an institutional investor, you usually have only one or two people that are calling the shots for that investment. So yes, they got to socialize it with their partners and get appropriate buy-in. And then each institutional investor has their own flavor and process for doing that. But ultimately the financial sponsor is really one and at most two for these early stage companies. And those things are based on personal relationships. That capital is less mobile as a result. The company would have to have a really strong value proposition and probably some evidence of traction to attract that capital across long boundaries, all right? And uh, here in New York State, as, as you know, upstate is not that far from New York City. We have so much capital, including early stage capital in New York City. And yet upstate firms, it's almost a, an early stage capital desert by comparison. In fact, here's an interesting stat for you. If I were to ask you where New York State was on the venture capital um, distribution side, you, I'm sure you're aware that New York State is the second largest provider of venture capital dollars in the country, second only behind California. But if I were to ask you, Elizabeth, if you had to guess, what is the split between New York Metro and upstate of those venture capital dollars, what would your guess be? Oh, gosh. So I would guess that something like 80% of the capital goes to New York City and 20% goes to the surrounding areas. Boy, do I wish we could get 20% of New York City's <laughs> capital. In my, if we could arrive at that stage, I would then say, wow, we have really knocked it out of the park. All right. So right now it varies by year, but it runs between upstate will get somewhere between 3%, between one and 3%. So call it New York Metro gets 97 to 99% of the venture capital dollars invested in New York State. Hmm. Now, when I'm commuting back and forth for 10 years, thinking about that imbalance, that was a really motivating hill to climb for me. Say, there's something wrong with that picture, especially when I consider all of these incredible assets we have across our upstate region. We have 100 plus colleges and universities. We do more than three and a half billion dollars of academic and commercial research and development a year. We have the largest concentration of STEM programs as a region of any place in the country. We have a lot of capital around. It's not just the capital of New York City, as I said, close proximity to New York City, capital of the world with regards to finance huge amounts of capital, an abundance of early stage capital. We have all these relationships with much of our best and brightest talent that migrated from upstate seeking opportunities to New York Metro. So we have both personal and institutional ties that are abundant in New York City. And with all of those assets, we're only getting one to 3% of New York State's venture capital there was something wrong with that picture for me. And hence, as a crazy entrepreneur, when I started this journey, everybody said, you can't do anything about that. You know, we got, the problem is the taxes are too high and the government regulations are too bad. You know, that's the reason this is all screwed up. And I would respond, well, wait a minute. I think the taxes are higher in California. 
I think the regulations are higher. Oh, by the way, in New York City, the taxes and regulations are higher than they are in upstate New York. You know, there's more to this story of how do you create jobs than just taxes and regulation. And unfortunately, too many of our political leaders haven't been equipped to understand, well, what does it take? They want to create jobs. Most of the political leaders I've run across, which have been many, because uh, I've spent some time in that arena as well, most of them are well-intentioned and want to do the right thing. They want to create jobs, but the formulas that they've taken to try and create jobs have not worked. And they continue repeating the same mistakes and think they're going to get a different result. And that was another frustrating thing for me to keep seeing the same thing happen over and over and over again and say, we got to start bringing some clarity to this. It's not about some of the messages that our political leaders keep telling people about. So I'm almost on board with what you're saying, but I am involved in a really competitive deal right now based in Park City, Utah. I'm looking at a couple opportunities that are based in the Southeast outside of major metropolitan areas. And with COVID, I'm seeing more and more entrepreneurs starting or keeping their businesses in places outside of the traditional magnetic cities. So I'm still skeptical. But another thing that I was thinking as you were talking is that, you know, some communities have lower taxes, have lower housing prices, but it's not it's not just that or the culture of a place like Boulder, Colorado. You know, Boulder, Colorado also has a beautiful setting, amazing weather. When I think about the possibility of living there versus living in other places, it would be a hard sell for me to move. So how do you think about that? You know, our is it worth some of these communities that may not have all the other amenities really putting time and effort into keeping their talent there? If you're a community leader, the last thing you want to do is throw in the towel and say, all right, you know, we're just going to let our next generation leave and not do something about it. If you're a real leader, you're not going to do that. All right. So every city has to make that choice. But to go to your point of some places are going to have more advantages than others, including with natural elements that can't change. The geography is the geography, all right? And some amenities are already in place and they have to be built upon. My observation would be when it comes to innovation economy companies, what really matters is in leveraging the talent first. And if someone can help start a tribe in wherever their community is, and thoughtful local leaders can learn how to work together and in crossing institutional boundaries, because that's another thing we talk about in the book that gets in the way. You get silos that occur, not only by geography, but also by institution and local institutions don't always work together, all right? So to change a culture and have everyone start to pull in the same direction with an eye on the ball, that being, how do we create more good jobs? And oh, by the way, for every one job that let's say a manufacturing plant creates, uh, which the economists would say, uh, for every one job a manufacturer creates, 1.6 jobs gets created in the local community. So politicians, local leaders run around and say, oh, we need more manufacturing. And meanwhile, the next generation talent isn't lining up to work in manufacturing, by the way. All right. There's, and your best and brightest talent are not standing in line to do that. Um, and the economist Enrico Beretti, who wrote the book, New Geography of Jobs, paints a very compelling picture that for every one job created in these innovation economy companies that have those two characteristics I mentioned earlier, they're doing something based on innovation, 
They're doing it with an ambition for selling to a national or global market. For every one job, even in this startup, five jobs are being created in the local community. So when you think about it and realize that by just increasing the number of innovation economy companies in a community, you have this five to one job multiplier. It's kind of a no brainer that this is your highest leverage point. You want more jobs? Create more innovation economy companies. Now, how can you do that? It's leverage your assets. And the most important asset would be the intellectual capital that you've got in that community. So we try to go to great lengths in the book to explain this from different viewpoints. There's the higher ed viewpoint in terms of colleges and universities. There are local nonprofits and what they can contribute to this. There are the local business leaders and what we'll call the highly influential people, people that may not necessarily be entrepreneurs, although they are the highest value, but even local corporate executives and local leaders that could even be in um, nonprofits or, or government. And then of course, there are economic development organizations and those that have a formal charter to try to do something about uh, creating more jobs. And each of them have a different perspective on why they do the things they currently do. And there's rare coordination among these institutions and leaders. So the thrust of more good jobs is to say, look, take advantage. You have talent in the community. You don't just want to say, thanks for growing up here. See you later. Well, when you come home for a visit, um, you want to be thoughtful about creating the environment in which local assets are leveraged and the community support can happen early enough and with enough quality so that people who have ideas about starting an innovation economy company say, of course I want to do it here. And this is the challenge. It's hard stuff. I mean, we've been working on it 10 years and I'll be the first to say that we've made some progress and I feel proud enough of that progress to write this book, but we have a long ways to go yet. And it is a journey rather than a destination we're going to arrive at quickly because my ambition is larger than a single community. It's not just taking one city, but to be able to connect assets across multiple geographies uh, covering a statewide region with a lot of siloing uh, because the culture is so different than what you have in Boulder. All right. It's a formidable task. Hmm. Well, and I will say that I've seen a lot of what you're saying firsthand because I split my time. I spend about 50% of the year in Vail, Colorado, which is a talent exporting community reliant heavily on tourism. And we have probably more very affluent, very high achieving people per capita than anywhere in the world. Yep. And it's completely untapped. And, and I've been able to leverage that for our fund, which has been very fun to do. But I'm curious to see how this COVID experience is going to change our community because right now the real estate market is going crazy because people are moving here because they're realizing that they don't need to live in New York City to do their job. And I think it's going to bring a, a totally different dynamic to our community. And, and I'm hopeful about the good that that can bring because we have a major affordable housing crisis in Vail, Colorado. And I think that that could even things out. It'll make it worse in the, in the short term because our housing prices are going so high, but I think it'll be a generator of higher paying jobs than we see in the tourism industry. But you have some advantages that are formidable, all right? Yeah. Vail already has the reputation of a high quality community. You have some local amenities that are best in class on a lot of levels, okay? 
And you also have, because of work that Brad started and has now been carried on by others, you have a bit of a Colorado network, such as we have an upstate wide network. And you have the ability to move in and out of Boulder, Denver, Colorado Springs. And you think of the different points around the state of Colorado where there's actually some sharing between nodes in the Colorado network helping each other. So Colorado is already advancing on this path that will make it easier for someone who does start a, a company in Vail to actually tap into resources that are located in other parts of Colorado. And I completely agree that COVID is creating this dynamic where there are people now recognizing that quality of life in some of these large traditionally magnet cities is not aligned with where they want to be. And whether it's pursuing outdoor opportunities or in our case, when my wife, Chris and I moved here in 99, it is a beautiful area. Your viewers can't see the virtual background behind me. A lot of the beauty of the Mohawk Valley along with recreational opportunities uh, we have here. But we made a decision that we wanted to raise our kids in a more rural community environment instead of a big metro area. That was a personal decision as well as their access, our children's access to their extended family. And there's a lot of people that have grown up in communities where they still have a heart in that community even if they're living someplace else. COVID is reminding people that there may be priorities beyond one's professional aspirations that they have left aside uh, as a result of the pursuit of professional goals. And that since people are now working more remotely with greater frequency and in, in, in ways that 12 months ago, none of us would have anticipated, all right? It's gonna change the opportunities for many people and places like Vail who have the level of natural amenities and quality of life things, you are without a doubt gonna come out the other end, especially because you're part of that greater Colorado tech ecosystem that is connecting entrepreneurs across the whole network. Well, I hope you're right. And if you need a, another town to focus on, I would make a plug for Eagle, Colorado, which yeah. is about 30 minutes from Vail. Yeah. Uh, it's got similar weather to Boulder. Housing prices are much less than Boulder. I would start a business there in a second. Maybe you can uh, go there and start a startup community. Well... <laughs> I've got my hands full at the moment doing work that I that I really want to see through, but I'll keep that in mind. We're actually building a house in Helena, Montana. That's a okay. life change for us. Sure. So my husband's worked with several startups and has had two exits recently. So we're going to split our time between Helena, Montana and Vail going forward. Right. So Helena may be my startup community now. We will see to be determined. I think there would be a lot of upside opportunity in a place like Helena, Montana. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, I'm seeing lots of benefits to these communities for pulling in startup talent and creating startup communities, but what's your pitch for the more financially minded person, for the financially driven VC or entrepreneur? Why should they read your book and pay attention to what you're up to? For VCs that are especially earlier stage VCs, Series A, late seed and Series A, in the magnet cities where capital is in abundance, for those deals, for reasons we describe in the book, the abundance of capital creates valuation issues. And if you're an early stage investor, you also know that valuation matters. The earlier you come into a deal, into a company, the greater the risk is, uh, not only because it may not work, 
but you can get pushed down the capital stack so far with later rounds of investment that if you paid too much in the early rounds, you won't do well on an exit. So that's a motivating thing for smart early stage investors who already have deep networks of resources in their magnet cities where they may operate to have a slice of deal flow to look at, especially in view of the fact that the intellectual capital can be equally high in some of these talent exporting communities. And because there is such a scarcity of early stage capital, it affects valuation. So you have the opportunity to come into high quality deals at a much more attractive price and provide a lot of value to these companies because of your networks and relationships in other areas. And that's the approach we've taken at my upventures capital, where I have a lot of fun being able to help some of these early stage companies. And because I do have a network that extends beyond this area, be able to connect entrepreneurs with the resources they need, uh, both on the nonprofit side, Upstate Venture Connect, and also on the investor side through my Upventures Capital. And so it's fun and our portfolio is doing well. I'm bullish about where it all goes. And I think the more investors that we are able to syndicate deals with, because that's an active part of what we do in being kind of the resident um, seed stage investor in upstate New York, we always go out and work hard to develop the right syndicate relationships to help with later rounds of financing. So there's lots of good opportunities for early stage investors that uh, have great track records of success in their chosen markets, but capital is a commodity. So to leverage what they already have in the form of their own intellectual capital alongside their financial resources, going to new markets is a good thing. Well, and two other things I'll add, you know, it's also a lot cheaper to run a company in some of these markets. You don't have to pay the same salaries and the same housing prices. And I think that there's a lot of benefits to being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. I've definitely reaped the benefits of that in Vail. You know, anytime a new person moves to town and has any sort of connection to startups or venture capital, people tell them to talk to me and I'm the venture capitalist that people think of. And I would just be one of hundreds of thousands in the Bay area. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned your involvement in the political realm briefly, and the election is right around the corner. So I'd love to one, just, I'd love for you to share just a minute on your experience in the political realm. And then I have a couple of questions to hear a few of your thoughts on the public sectors also. My start on the political side began in 2016 when our congressman at the time, the late Richard Hanna, announced to everyone's surprise in November 2015 that he was not going to run for reelection. I met with him uh, only 30 days ahead of that. And he assured me he was running for re-election. And you may not be aware of that. If you are an incumbent running for Congress, your chances of re-election, depending on the year, run somewhere between 95 and 99%. And so when you have an open seat, if you're even thinking about trying to make a difference in the political world, in the US Congress, open seats are the time to do it. So that caused me to really think about running. And New York State is a little bit different than other states because we have something that's unique and that we allow a single candidate to list on more than one line of the ballot. So it means even if you ran as a Republican or a Democrat, you might also list on the conservative party or the working families party or the Serve America Movement Party. You have all these options. And the more I looked into it, 
the more I was convinced that the real opportunity here wasn't so much as a candidate, but to create a minor party. So I ran as an independent candidate for Congress in 2016 as a stepping stone to try to create a new minor party in the state of New York called the Upstate Jobs Party. And that journey continues today. It's a long and interesting story about what happened in 2016. We do have some reality TV videos on babinickforcongress.com. Anyone has insomnia and would just like to get some entertainment on what is it like to run as an independent candidate, you can check those out. But yes, that put me on a path where my understanding of the political process is so much different now, having been through that experience as running for office, for federal office, and met a lot of amazing people, learned a lot, not just about policy, but about what affects candidates to do the things they do. And also made me very aware of the forces that are at work on why we're so polarized, left versus right, in this country today, and how much worse it has gotten in especially the last 10, 15 years, all right, for reasons that most voters don't understand. So I work pretty hard on that side as well. That's a, it's not a huge chunk of my time, but I'm a person that works on a variety of different things, each of them with a long-term commitment, and the political side happens to be one of them. Well, thank you for your work in that arena and all the work you're doing, but I'd love to know your take on this. So I often feel this wave of inspiration to become more engaged in the public sector and to promote the change that I'd like to see in the world. And I am an entrepreneur, so I jump right in and I stay engaged for a few months and tell the impatient straight shooting entrepreneur in me can't take it anymore. And I give up and turn my focus back to the private sector. And I'm constantly wondering if I can inspire more change by patiently and persistently pushing the public sector, if I should focus on building great companies or what balance I should strike between the two. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you face a similar conundrum and how you think about this. My own view is if it's in your heart to try to make a difference on what happens with government, then you should absolutely pursue it. And it need not be, as we talk about in the book, it need not be with 100% of your time and commitment, but it's better to stake out a path that makes sense for you and be ready to stay with it for the long term. So if you get to the end of the book, we try to wrap that up in the closing chapter and the conclusion about you got to stay in this for the long game or you're not in it for the right reasons. Right? Whether it's creating more good jobs, which has been my singular focus, or whatever it is, whatever the track is, it's finding something that speaks to your heart and saying, I'm just not going to give up on this after six months because I believe so dearly about it, I'm, gonna, I'm ready to make a long-term commitment. So what are some options? If you, if you decide to narrow your focus and find one particular element that you want to latch onto, there's a range of options to consider. Clearly, if there's a candidate that you believe in, helping a candidate, including an elected official running for office, is a great way to become familiar with what's it like on the inside? Because when you only write checks as a donor and cast your vote in the voting booth, that's a start, but it's not nearly the same, especially in this day and age where it's so expensive and all the stuff they have to do to raise money to run for office. The only way you can understand what the political process looks like is being involved in a campaign. So finding a candidate that you believe in, that's an example of one approach. Finding an issue that you believe in. For me, my the political side for me includes a slice on recognizing that we need to make structural changes. 
because it is the structure that's created this polarization between our two parties, or let's say our two philosophies of left and right. And of course, um, if you're a candidate, you can raise the most amount of money by being furthest left and furthest right, by the way. There's no money for candidates who are in the center. And this is something that escapes most voters' attention. And they wonder, well, why is it we're so far apart? And it's because, well, guess who's writing the checks for the candidates? Far left and far right. So to change that dynamic requires looking at making structural changes and the parties that are in power have no desire to change the structure because they keep the power. So that's very discouraging at one level and too many people will just throw up their hands and say, can't do anything about that, you know, because the parties have all the power. And even though there's a lot of voters who would like to see more third parties, hey, we're in the venture investing business and we're trying to help startups. We believe in the free market. We believe in lots of choice. Those things are common to our beliefs. And yet we don't have much choice when it comes to the political process. So to change the structure requires some new approaches that can overcome the structural barriers to even bring about those new approaches. And I will tell you, I am more encouraged now um, in recent years, this year, I'm more encouraged than I've been in a long time that I think there are some possibilities of bringing about some structural change on that political side. Uh, one organization I could point you to that is got a footing right in Colorado is Unite America. You can visit uniteamerica.org, and you'll see that they have some pretty impressive approaches. And I will tell you from my contact with them, some very impressive people um, that are in this for the long term and ready to do it. And on the entrepreneur side, um, for those listeners that are thinking about, hey, how can I help the political process come around to understanding these differences between small businesses and startups? And how do we create the right environment from a public policy perspective? I would strongly encourage people to look at righttostart.org, which is a new organization started by Victor Huang former um, vice president of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, and a great way to be familiar with what can you do in your community to help educate your political leaders on the things that can make a difference in embracing the opportunities in the innovation economy. Thank you. And, and I'll add one other organization. So, the Electing Women Alliance is a network of local giving groups. And the thought is if there's more women elected to public office, it'll change the dynamic, which I believe to be true. Um, and I'm part of our local chapter in Vail, and it is a commitment of two candidates per election cycle. Uh, so it's a relatively small commitment, but we meet and determine which candidates we're gonna support. And we've had very high level candidates, uh, Claire McCaskill, Heidi Heitkamp, Amy McGrath came and spoke to us personally. And we've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for candidates. And I think the thing that works so well for me and that structure is that I feel like I'm actually making a difference because we write at least a $25,000 check for each candidate rather than what I've done in the past, which is I get excited, I write a $200 check, and then I feel like I keep needing to do more and more and more, which is really distracting as an entrepreneur and also just frustrating as an entrepreneur who likes to make big progress immediately. <laughs> Yeah. But maybe I'll point something else out as well, Elizabeth. I, I completely agree. What you're describing makes a lot of sense. All right. And that you are making a difference by taking the steps that you are. But I'd also observe that you're banding together with a tribe that has a very specific focus that speaks to your heart. And it's not just the money that you're putting into it, but you're getting to meet other people that share the passion that you have for this. And sometimes it's the interaction with other people that have 
passion for the thing that's in your heart also makes it a rewarding process and encourages you to do more because you found a tribe that shares an important value that you have. And that's something in the book, we've gone to great lengths to try to explain that notion that if you want to make change happen, it all begins with that vision of here's the change we're trying to bring about. Who are the people that have the passion for this particular change? And how can we engage them in a way that makes sense for them? And when you can do that, it's one relationship at a time to build that tribe. And whether it's supporting women candidates for office or trying to build a community that's going to support the next generation of companies that will create jobs or whatever the cause, these are the things that can be rewarding to see happen as it unfolds and fun to participate in. But it begins with someone having the vision and the leadership to do as you're doing. And that is the story of more good jobs. Mm. Thank you. You know, with the election right around the corner, what's one non-obvious thing that every VC and entrepreneur should do before the election? I pause because uh, I suspect VCs and people that are serious about their country and their their local elections as well. It's not just top of the ticket, but most thoughtful people are going to go out and vote. And there are a lot of people that will base their vote on the emotional side of what they see in the advertising, which by the way, is the reason that candidates always run negative ads as a much higher percentage of total advertisements we see politically then here is what I believe in type ads, okay? Um, so the one thing that I would be encouraging people is don't jump too quickly on just the, um, the advertising and take the time to diligence uh, candidates and look at the structural opportunities um, that could also be on the ballot. I'll speak here for our next door neighbor friends in Massachusetts that have proposition, I think, yes on two is the name of it, for ranked choice voting. This would be an example of something that I would call out as an opportunity to bring about structural change in the political process. If it wins in Massachusetts, as we hope, it could be another structural change opportunity to begin spreading to other states. It was passed in Maine. And in fact, it got passed in Maine because um, people from Massachusetts came over the border to help win that ballot proposition in Maine. And the person who ran the uh, ranked choice voting proposition in Maine said, you know, if you come from Massachusetts and we win this in Maine, I will help you do this in Massachusetts. And so she has. So I'm sitting on the edge of my chair, hoping that we see this pass in Massachusetts. And I'll give you a hint. It's on my horizon. And you may be hearing about this from the Upstate Jobs Party some point in the future for New York State. Well, we'll stay tuned. And I want to give a quick plug for one of our portfolio companies. So we invested in Ballot Ready, which helps people make informed decisions from the top to the bottom of the ballot. And in Colorado, we have a very long ballot this cycle. And I've been using Ballot Ready to help make some decisions. And as you said, there's a lot of things on there that really affect business that I'm hoping our listeners will pay attention to and also encourage a neighbor and friend to pay attention to as well. I will definitely look that one up and see if we can put it to work here. So, Martin, what's your end game in all of this? Will we see you run for president in uh, 2024? No. <laughs> Don't expect to see me as a candidate. I'm here with a handful of things going on that I find interesting, fun, and rewarding. So, 
I'm in execution mode. I got enough on the plate, plenty on the plate to keep me busy, but I do want to help keep chipping away at making changes in a structural way along the lines that I've mentioned. Thank you. And if I invite you to be as self-promoting as possible, what's one more thing that you'd like to share with our listeners? Buy the book, More Good Jobs. Visit our website, moregoodjobs.org. And if you like what you see, consider not only getting it, but joining our More Good Jobs community so that you can help others in your community start and grow companies and keep your best talent in your community instead of waving goodbye to them. Thank you. All right. You heard it here. Let's get some more good jobs out there. All right. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Martin. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes or share this episode. For more tips on how to be a better venture capitalist, you can check out our website at fund81.com. That's F-U-N-D-8-1.com. Until next time.